If you only have a 401k, you're not getting the most for retirement. Wait, what? Add a Robinhood IRA on top, then they'll boost it by 3%. You can do that? And if you transfer in any retirement account, you get 3% on top of that. Is there a limit to the match? No limit. Robinhood Gold gets you the biggest contribution match of any IRA on the market. Sign up for Robinhood Gold at Robinhood.com boost by April 30th. Subscription fees apply. Investing involves risk. 3% match requires gold for one year from first match. Must keep IRA for five years. Match on transfers subject to additional terms and conditions. Robinhood Financial LLC, member SIPC. I knew D. Brian Blair when he was with the WWF and, of course, with Jump and Jim Brunzel, uh, the Killer Bees, you know, the tag team. Uh, but you never, uh, you never know what to expect. And this one kind of knocked me on my, uh, my keister because, uh, you know, uh, Brian had so many great stories. Uh, among them, uh, many of you may know, you uh, may remember Mike McGurkin. He was briefly married to her. Uh, she was a, a ring announcer for the WWF, but prior to that, you know, you know before that, you know, she is the daughter of Leroy McGurk, and uh, Brian has some great stories. I, I mean, I'll get kind of the chaser. I mean, that's one point where Leroy almost shot uh, V. Brian Blair. He almost didn't make it to the WWF and uh, would not be around today, and that's just one of the stories, and also uh, about his his journey even to getting into the ring. So uh, I'm really happy to finally bring this uh, episode to you, and I think you're, you're going to love it. So what do you say? Be Brian Blair. Ding, ding, ding. Well, my guest this week was part of one of the most popular tag teams in the WWF during that golden era. You know which one I'm talking about. It's one we're always talking about in the 80s and 90s. Smack dab in the middle of the WWF's rise all over the world from 1985 to 1988. Uh, what a tremendous time. And there was always a lot of uh, buzz about this dynamic duo. Yes, I went there. Because uh, <laughs> joining me on primetime is none other than B. Brian Blair, one half of the tag team, the Killer Bees. And of course, oh, yes. Well, let me just say this, Mr. Sean Moody. I am so excited about being on prime time. And you talked about being all around the world. And that's true. You know, I've been from Maine to Spain and I've uh, spread pollen from New York to Holland. And that's how we actually created the swarm. You know, I've been from ocean to ocean, from coast to coast. I've been north, south, east and west. And today I'm especially excited to be your guest. You still got it. You still got it, Brian. Uh, it's like it was yesterday, isn't it? Uh, kind of feels that way. Oh, yes, 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 yes. I remember just uh, talking about Hazel's Honey Hut and running all around the world and flapping the wings and buzzing all over. Just seems like uh, the older I get, the more it's happening again. And so <laughs> I'm glad people appreciate the legends. Yeah, you know, it, it is happening again. And I don't know when you felt, uh, you know, this this new resurgence. Uh, but if, uh, certainly the, the WWE Network has helped us. But uh, you know, what do you think it is about that period of time? And I'm not, uh, you know, there, there's certainly, uh, you know, some tremendous wrestling fans that love, uh, you know, maybe the early 2000s and all. But that was just a special time. We're talking 80s and 90s. And you run into these people all the time. What do you think it was about that time that they hold so dear? Because that's when wrestling went mainstream. If you recall all the territories, you know, everybody came from the territories. You know, I worked for Vince McMahon Sr. 
right. on two different occasions for yeah. WWF. And uh, Vince Jr. was an announcer. Uh-huh. And uh, he was actually a good announcer. He worked well with uh, Lord uh, Alfred Hayes and Ray Monsoon and Bobby the Brain Heenan. And, uh, oh, let's not forget that other Jesse. great commentary, Pat Patterson. And Pat Patterson. <laughs> <laughs> I had my first match with Pat Patterson. Yeah. Him and Ivan Koloff in a tag match. Yeah. But uh, I think that the whole dynamics of wrestling changed, and that era became hot when we when uh, rock and wrestling came along, the Cindy Lauper uh, age uh, after wrestlemania one you know a lot of people don't realize this but that was george scott's brainchild and who happened to be vince's booker he came up with the name wrestlemania at the time yeah at the time and um so uh i came in uh right after wrestlemania one i got a call from hogan and i was a florida heavyweight champion and um i wanted to come to back to uh wwf at the time wwe and yeah. uh, i was just waiting for the right time and vince wanted to create a a, a tag team uh, a group to be a focal point to help build the uh brand and um so there was a lot of great tag teams during that era and um hogan called uh me and asked me if i knew jumping jim brunzel and i said well i heard of him with the high flyers and uh, Greg Gagne, and he said, yeah, well, he's coming in, and uh, Vince wants uh, to tag you guys up, because you know, Vince already knew me, and we had right. a good report. Yeah. And um, <clears throat> and that one of the, for some reason, Vince and Jimmy got along like oil and water, and uh, always have. Vince Sr., or you're talking Jr.? Vince Jr., okay. Vince Jr. And uh, I've always gotten along great with Vince Jr. I, I respect him. I appreciate what he does for what the entire organization does for the Cauliflower Alley Club, which is my passion. Right. And um, uh, he's, uh, you know, he's never really uh, cheated me. He was good when I was at WrestleMania Five. I had given my notice. I did WrestleMania Two, WrestleMania Three, WrestleMania Four, WrestleMania Five. Uh, gave my notice uh, a few weeks earlier. He still told me to come, and uh, knew I didn't want to do a job because I was uncertain what I was going to do, where I was going to go. So he paid me anyway and didn't have me work. And uh, I thought, wow, what a class act. That was really yeah. nice. Though. Well, you know, so. Brian, I want to get into all that. I, we're we're going to get to the, your, your, your arrival in the WWF, WWE. But I really think we need to uh, lay some of the foundation here so people really understand your journey. Um, I know that I, you were born in, in Gary, Indiana, right? And uh, was it shortly after that you arrived in Florida? I was in fifth grade. I was like 10 and a half yeah. years old. And, and what prompted uh, that move? I mean, uh, well, um, <laughs> yeah, uh, Gary, Indiana, you know, I don't know if you know about Gary, but it's kind of like the armpit of the United States and the song, uh, Gary, Indiana, uh, <laughs> Gary, Indiana. Yeah. Yeah. And you uh, know, it's not, it's not, um, actually my dad and I went there about, uh, 10 years ago at my grandfather's funeral. Um, Close more than that now. Now that I think of it, ten years ago it was 1987. Um, but uh, God, time flies. Thirty yeah. years. Ago. Uh, and uh, the neighborhood was nicer then than it was when we left it. But um, you know, when I grew up, uh, there was one other white family on my block, and the rest were uh, African American or Hispanic. Uh-huh. So I grew up as a real minority, and you know, when that we didn't know. We were colorblind as kids. Yeah, I was going to say you were. Yeah, you just probably didn't know there was a difference. Yeah, we didn't. I mean, it was this, it was the same. But my parents, for some reason, wanted to get wanted to get. I have uh, four younger siblings, and 
wanted to get wanted us to leave Gary, and since he was a, a union carpenter, he had an opportunity here in uh, Hillsborough County, where Tampa is. Hillsborough County has uh, three cities: Temple Terrace, Plant City, and Tampa, Florida. Right. Um, and um, we wound up in Tampa, and uh, he started working for the union, mm-hmm. and that's how we got here. Yeah. What was Tampa like back then? And, we're, and I, you're uh, just about my age, so we're talking, you said you got there in fifth grade, so we're talking, what, uh, late 60s, early 70s? Yeah, somewhere somewhere right in there. Yeah. And um, uh, I've been 71. Um, Tampa was uh, a small city back then. All they had was really was wrestling. There was no Buccaneers. There were yeah. no rays there were no lightning you know it was a it was a great small town and it's still a small big town um uh-huh. uh hillsborough county is a, like the 32nd largest county in the united states of america it's a thousand seventy eight point two square miles which is about the size of rhode island which is just a little over 1200 square miles and at the population 1.3 million people uh that's more people than are in 10 other states so it's a it's a big county and yeah. uh Later on, I ran for county commission countywide and won. And we lost the first time, won the second time, lost by uh, four tenths of a point the first time to the top politician in the area. But uh, uh, growing up uh, in, in Tampa was, uh, it was just really good to me. Everybody was friendly. Everybody was nice. And it's, and it's still pretty much that way. I mean, we live in a great neighborhood, very little crime, very mm-hmm. yeah, everybody's friendly to each other. Neighbors still get the other person's paper and take the other person's trash can up if they're not home or whatever, mm-hmm. you know, just things like that. So, yeah. And uh, I, I've enjoyed working in the community. You know, I've coached baseball for 20 seasons, um, coached football for 10 seasons, um, I've uh, spoken over half the schools in Hillsborough County, which is a lot of schools. Um, I'm a registered speaker for um, for our um, uh, Serve, which is uh, the speaker's uh, educational um, forum. And, um, you know, it's just uh, it's good to give back. Uh, and I love giving back to the community. And now I'm yeah, giving so back to the wrestling business. Yeah, so it's pretty much, uh, I mean, that's hometown for you, uh, uh, even though maybe you were, arrived there in the fifth grade. So, I mean, Tampa's been a part of you since you were a kid. And you, you, the first thing you mentioned is that we had wrestling. Uh, what are your early memories of that? Was it something you shared with your father or uh, maybe uh, other siblings? When did that uh, start becoming part of your life? Well, it's, uh, you know, that's a great uh, question, Sean, and it's a very important question in my life because at the age of 13, um, my, I didn't see my dad around very much, and I knew that um, the union had gone on strike, and mm-hmm. he was out of work, and never really saw my parents argue in front of me, but my dad wasn't around, and I kept asking my mom, where's dad at? And she said, well, he's working at other places and stuff like that, and all of a sudden, we started getting boxes of spam and uh, mm. boxes that had spam and um, uh, uh, what do you call that? Um, um, the powdered so like powder like, like handout food. Yeah, like handout food. Yeah. You know, all of a sudden we're getting food stamps and I, I, no no meat or anything. And I'm yeah. I'm really getting into sports now and starting to work out. And then um, right around that time, I. Turn on the TV, WTOG Channel 44, and there's Gordon Solis talking, and I see Jack Briscoe doing an interview, and man, I was just like, 
hooked on wrestling after yeah. that. I watched just one episode of wrestling, and that was it. I was hooked. Yeah, and that's that's what I wanted to be. I wanted to be a wrestler. <laughs> so, so um, you you kind of you talk about uh, it sounds like tough times. Um, like, was your father estranged in the family, or is he just out working trying to make a living? What was what was going on, and did wrestling help you get through it? Uh, yeah, I was an amateur wrestler. I've, I've played sports. I won the first, uh, Hillsborough County junior high school championship. And, um, uh, that was in ninth grade. Some people call it middle school now, but it was junior high then. Yeah. And, um, yeah. um, so I, I just got into sports since my dad wasn't around and, um, just used to always, uh, try to get money, earn a little money. I started working when I was 13. I had a paper route and I mm-hmm. uh, eventually sold sodas in the Tampa stadium and, uh, watched Mr. Wonderful Paul Orndorff, number 40, play for the Tampa Spartans and dreamed about playing football there. Freddie Solomon, who was a tremendous quarterback. He's second in receiving yards uh, uh, for the San Francisco 49ers, only next to Jerry Rice. And mm-hmm. so Freddie Solomon was a tremendous athlete. But, you know, it was difficult not seeing my dad. And, you know, he's one of my best friends. Uh, probably my my best friend, you know, as uh-huh. a dad. Um Problem is, I have to go play poker all the time with him to see him. And, uh, <laughs> and you're not a good poker player? <laughs> I'm so so, you know, uh, uh, not, not nearly as good as my son Bradley, but uh, yeah. uh, um, he uh, he's really good. My dad, like, he'll take $60 to the Hard Rock um, six days a week, and he's hit a $50,000 bad beat. He's won, I don't know how many um, high hands were $777 sitting there, this little yeah. 60 bucks, but, uh, that's what he enjoys. And, uh, he's a good, uh, level headed guy who, you know, taught me to be humble and, um, always told me to, you know, be myself and don't let people change who I am and just be humble and always remember that I've got uh, two ears and one mouth and gave me great advice like that, that, uh, you know, kind of helped me in the wrestling industry actually because you know everything's political yeah Um, well you but you talk about that period of time um i got i don't know if there was a separation you know where you say you didn't get to see him a lot but i know you were a tremendous athlete at hillsborough county high school uh i know you uh participate all I, i don't know what sport didn't you uh participate in was well, I lettered. I, I lettered in four sports. I, yeah. I lettered in four sports, which is still a record here. Um, <laughs> I lettered in baseball, track and field, wrestling, and football. Um, all my freshman year, and uh, because I didn't want to go home, I just wanted to play sports and I wanted to to be somebody. I remember. Um, I'll tell you a story that I don't tell too many people, but uh, I went uh, in um, fifth grade. There was a sixth grader, Philip Epperson who is a Hillsborough County Sheriff. Well, he just retired, but um, I later met him when I was a Hillsborough County Commissioner. But when I was in fifth grade, he used to tease me all the time. And, um, uh, you know, just he had a couple of buddies and they were real rednecks. And yeah. my mom uh, asked me out of the clear blue, because I would always ask, Mom, I want to go to the store. I want some chicken or some hamburger. I'm tired of this food. I, I'm trying to work out. You know, <laughs> I'm like right. reading these magazines telling me how many proteins that I need and everything. And I've got one of those uh, weight sets with uh, that are filled with cement. And, um, you know, we got one of those from a yard sale or something. And um, <laughs> I was really into that weight set. And uh, 
trying to eat good. And one day she said, would you like to go to the store? And I said, yeah, mom, because we had Sly Avenue, which is really, really packed back then. And yeah. she didn't want me to cross the street by myself. She's a very protective mom. Um, yeah. And she lives in this house right now. So um, I said, uh, mom, I'll cross the street. Da, 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 da. I'll make sure I'm careful. I can't believe you can't trust me. Yeah, but anyway, she went through all this and she hands, I'm waiting for her to hand me money and she hands me this coupon. So, Sean, when she hands me this coupon, I I just kind of looked at her and she said, don't worry, just give that to the lady and this will be more than enough to pay for what you have on your grocery list. Make sure you get everything on the grocery list and um, she'll give you another coupon back. Don't forget to get that. And I said, okay. So, I went to the store. I was happy. I didn't think nothing of it. Made sure I got some chicken, hamburger, everything that was on the list. And back then, they just had cash registers. So I'm watching to make sure the lady doesn't cheat my mom on the price and brings it in right and everything. And all of a sudden, I hear, hey, look, it's Blair. Look, hey. And I hear some laughing behind me. And it's this guy, uh, uh, Steve Epperson, and his two cronies. And now I'm kind of getting embarrassed because the lady tells me what the price is. I forgot what that was. But anyway, uh, I hand her the coupon, and I hear all this snickering, and da 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 and she hands me the coupon back. And um, I grab my groceries, and I get out of there as fast as I can. I know they're ragging on me. So the next day, uh, my mom goes to take me to Egypt Lake Elementary School on Sly Avenue, and she always dropped me off about 300 yards so I could pretend like I was walking to school, and I could kiss my mom goodbye, and nobody would see me. <laughs> Yeah. And uh, she lets me off and I walk up and there's a whole bunch of people in front of Egypt Lake Elementary School and they're all huddled up in front of the school. So I, and uh, I um, see the spray paint and I hear these people, Blair, Blair, there he is. And, oh, and, I mean, the ugliest words you could possibly imagine. Blair is a poor white, you know, the, oh, it was really, really bad. So I ran all the way home. I never stopped running. I ran all the way home in tears. was never going to go back to school again. And Mr. Agliano, who I owe a phone call to, by the way, I'm glad you asked me this question. Um, Mr. Agliano um, came to my house and talked to me and gave me a great motivational speech, told me I could be anything I wanted to be and that those guys were just losers and nobody was going to ever bother me at school. And he was a sixth grade teacher too. And um, he was pretty big and people really respected Mr. Agliano. And so I believed him and went back. Nobody harassed me after that. And, um, uh, at least nothing to, to speak of. And, you know, he's still a friend of mine today. And I, I just uh, really, grateful that I went through that very humbling experience mm -hmm. make me what I you know be the person the appreciative person that I am today because I'm grateful for every blessing that I have you said you ran into this guy years later when you were uh, <clears throat> involved in politics and uh, did you ask him about that I just always wonder what what would happen I was at I was at a I was a county commissioner, a countywide yeah. commissioner, and he came up to me out of the clear blue sky at this um, one of the uh, some meeting that I was at, and um, he said Brian, and I looked and I said Steve, and he goes, oh man, he goes, I just want to apologize to you for all that stuff. And wow. I could, you know, Stayed with I, him all like, those years. Yeah, he remembered it all those years. That's mm. amazing that he did that. And so, uh, you know, we're, we're friends today. I mean, I mean, no. it, it and he ended up as a police chief. As 
Not not the chief. He was, uh, I believe, he was uh, sergeant when he retired. Okay. Uh, but but getting back to that, uh, it seems like um, something that changed you, and uh, you know, I don't know, uh, changed your focus on you said to be anything you wanted to be. Uh, was it different after that day for you? Everything was different after that day. I looked at life completely different. Um, I just uh, realized that you got to toughen up and got to, you know, kind of uh, stick to the books and stick to the balls and um, learn as much as you can. Uh, you know, keep your mind busy and stay away from uh, people that uh, aren't going to, um, uh, or that aren't heading in the right direction, the same direction you want to go in. Yeah. So I was able to do that because of you know great teachers and great leaders that you know picked up picked me up when I was down. Yeah. And, and you played all these sports. Uh, I think I know the answer to this, but you had a favorite that uh, you know you really wanted to pursue before wrestling became part of that. Well, it was football at first, yeah. and then it became wrestling. Um, right. And so I was going to go to the University of Tampa, and they folded football. Mm-hmm. Uh, Wound up going to St. Leo College because the University of Louisville gave all of their scholarships away, which uh, when it was time to get recruited, um, uh, I was going to go to Louisville and, um, uh, well, Tampa, then Louisville was my second choice. And I uh, wound up, uh, since all their scholarships were gone, Vince Gibson told me to you know, go to St. Leo College where I played football, club football for Tilroy Morrison. They weren't NCAA. They didn't give scholarships. Um, they gave away, I got hardship money. The reason I went to Louisville as well is because they had the one of the best um, intramural wrestling programs in the state of uh, Kentucky. One of the best ones um, in the United States, actually, at that time. And we wrestled Eastern, Western, Moorhead, Kentucky, all, all different kinds of places although it wasn't ncaa uh, sanctioned it was still college wrestling and it still kept me wrestling until i got into the dungeon with hiro matsuda my junior year of college so that was that was your first uh real training was was amateur wrestling oh absolutely yeah absolutely that probably provided a pretty good base wrestled from seventh grade uh with structured wrestling with coaches from seventh grade until uh my junior year in college so when did you, uh, I, I think that like right out of high school, I, I think in uh, like 77 around that area that you started training uh, professionally? I actually, that, started, I, I actually started thinking about, may, you know, maybe I might be able to do something like this. Uh, well, I started uh, Buddy Colt. Um, well, it's, it started out before Buddy Colt. Uh, the Briscoes and Eddie Graham and Mike Graham came to one of my amateur wrestling meets and, uh, Back then, uh, Channel 13 here in Tampa, mm-hmm. there was uh, a guy, God bless him, uh, the sports uh, reporter, uh, Andy Hardy, uh-huh. who really took a liking to me because he knew about my background and that I was from a broken home. And, uh, he did a like a story on me, and uh, Eddie Graham came up and introduced himself to me and um Told me if I ever wanted to be a professional, that's all he had to say. Told me if I was ever interested in being a professional wrestler, wrestler to let him know. <laughs> so, well, that really stuck in my brain. Yeah. And then we had been moving from apartment complex to apartment complex to apartment mm. complex. Um, and I wound up in an apartment complex with Buddy Colt. Mm-hmm. Uh, and um, started babysitting his kids because 
He knew I was looking for any way to make a dollar. So yeah. I babysit his girls and then I babysat, um, uh, Fred Ottman's wife, um, his, mm. well, his ex-wife, um, and, uh, her sister, um, uh, just did some, you know, any kind of job that I could to, to pick up a dollar. But, uh, uh, buddy talked to Eddie and, um, and Jack and, they all invited me down to the sportatorium for a tryout. So, hey, Brian, how big so, of a, when you, you mentioned about you, you meant you know you kind of throw these names out there and people you know I know the ears are perking up Briscoes uh, you know Ottman uh, that I don't know if people realize what a huge wrestling community that uh, Tampa area and that part of Florida was then. Oh, you're so right, Sean. I mean, it, Tampa was the hotbed of wrestling. I mean. Eh, Almost everybody came through Florida, all the big stars, you know, from, from all over. I mean, from King Curtis, uh, Joe LaDuke, um, you know, just guys from uh, Oxbaker, you name it, they were all here. And you had your, you know, Dusty Rhodes and um, Jack Briscoe and Jerry Briscoe and Mike Graham and Steve Kern were your staple baby faces. And they, Eddie Graham just was into always feeding new heels. Yeah. And so the heels would come in, do their angle, uh, pass through and, and go on. And, you know, Don Morocco and I became great friends. Uh, uh, he kind of took me under his wing too. And, um, but, but the hardest thing was, um, before I went to college is when I was invited to the sportatorium. And so I'm with, I'm in this hot place in the summertime, um, Come, I came down there in a pair of tennis shoes and a pair of shorts and a t-shirt and started working out with Hero and we started doing Hindu squats and push-ups and, and then wrestling. And every time I, I knew how to amateur wrestle, so I'd take him down and all of a sudden I'm screaming because he's got me in a double wrist lock. <laughs> <at the laughs> tight yeah. and, Talk about how <laughs> brutal that guy was. I mean, uh, you hear oh, heard horror oh. stories about uh, what uh, Hero uh, Matsuda was like. Uh, you said like you show up, I mean, I, I, uh, they, they talk about doing, you know, 30, 30, thirties, you know, these, uh, where, you know, you do 30 pushups, they do 30 pushups and you'd go on and on and on with these. What was, what was, uh, it like training under that guy? It was the hardest thing I've ever done in my life. And I say that without hesitation, physically, the hardest thing that I've ever done in my life. And, um, the first day I, finally rolled out of the ring and I threw up all over and he made me go some more until I thought, you know, he was trying to run me off. I knew he was trying to run me off and uh, or to see how much I had in my tank. Yeah. Came back the next day, right on time. Did the same thing, same result. Threw up all over the place. Um, and, uh, he kind of laughed. I forget it. Maybe he called me some kind of a, not so bad, but not a real kind name. Um, and then the third, the third day I came in there and he was surprised that I even showed up the, the third day and we went through the same thing. And finally the time came and I rolled out of the ring again and laid on that concrete and I'm just waiting, waiting to heave and I'm waiting, nothing's happening. And all of a sudden Mr. Matsuda takes his front foot and he lifts my chin up with his bare foot because he didn't wear boots. He just wrestled barefoot. Uh-huh. And he pushed my chin up and he says, what's the matter, boy? You know, puke. And I said, uh, you know, out of breath. Well, Mr. Matsuda, I haven't eaten since the last time I puked. And I saw <laughs> and I saw him turn his head and 
I saw his like ears lift up. So I knew he was smiling. And I thought, oh man, he might take it easier, a little easier on me now. And he actually did, you know, came the fourth day and it wasn't quite, I think I ate, I'm sure I ate something. I had to eat something, but I didn't, there was no more throwing up. And by the second week, um, you know, I'd get him in some compromising positions, but he'd always hook his way out. No matter what I did to him, he's, he'd always hook his way out. He was a tremendous hooker. Yeah. And he'd bring Carl Gotch finally the next summer. Carl Gotch came, Gordon Nelson came, uh, Bob Backlund, a bunch of people that knew how to both wrestle and, and hook. And so then I learned for three straight summers hooking. And out of over 100 people that came, um, Danny Spivey came, he left. Um, uh, Scott Hall came, he left. I think he came back. Um um, but anyway, uh, Orndorff, wasn't there another kid up. hanging around there? Some kid by the name of Terry Balea. Yeah. About a hulkster, Terry and, uh, Terry. And he quit one time too, and came back and hero broke his ankle. And that's a true story. Um, it wasn't at the sport of toy. They, you know, they really, you, you mentioned about running you off. I mean, uh, a lot of people don't understand that it wasn't just, they just worked you out to death. I mean, they would hurt you. Just, uh, you know, to where they you they would injure you to see, you know, they really wanted to run you off or see what you're made of. Absolutely. Absolutely. And and they hurt a lot of people in front of me. And and then uh, this by the second summer, I became like the enforcer for them. And, um, <laughs> you know, I'd have to run the people out, but I wouldn't break bones or anything because I didn't have a heart to do that yeah. until one time Buddy Colt came and told me he said um i'm getting married to a girl named lorraine and her and her brother is a real redneck he's pushed his mom down the stairs he's beat up lorraine uh broke her wrist um he thinks he can beat dusty roads and da 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 so i'm saying well well what do you just bring him in and i'll uh show him that he's not as tough as he thinks he is <laughs> and so uh buddy brings him down um and the guy's got a pair of boots on like Dusty, has his uh, jeans stuck in his pants like Dusty. Yeah. He's got a T-shirt cut off, but it wasn't a Dusty T-shirt, but he had the sleeves cut off. Yeah, right. A big cowboy belt on with a buckle and everything. He's about, uh, with his cowboy boots on, I'm standing in my wrestling boots, and he's probably about 6'4". And got a beer belly, um, but a you know, big kind of a bar bruiser right. uh, guy. You could tell he was a redneck, but what really got me was, uh, but he said, uh, he tells him, okay, now if you can beat up Ryan Blair, who's a nobody, he's never even had a match. He stinks. He's sorry. He can't even get into the ring yet. If you can beat him up, then you can have Dusty Rhodes uh, in whatever kind of match you want to have. Him. So Eddie Graham, comes, eh, all the people are out there now. Gordon Soley, yeah. everybody comes all around the ring. And a buddy said, okay, you guys shake hands. <laughs> and uh, all of a sudden, I, I stuck my hand out. And the guy goes, hockered right in my face. I mean, just blew a loogie right in the middle of my mm. face. And something about that, Sean, uh, that's the first time in my life that I really came unglued. And... So I wound up beating the guy so bad, uh, broke his nose and his orbital and yeah. all kinds of stuff. And he's just trying to get out of the, uh, these guys are cheering me on now. So you got to yeah. remember, I'm not really, I'm listening. I'm kind of out of my mind. And yeah. these guys are telling me to kill this guy. And he opens the sportatorium door. And as he does, he 
he like runs into Blackjack Mulligan and trips down and falls down. And Blackjack Mulligan looked at me and he looked at him and he goes, damn, I'm sure glad I'm already broke in. And uh, I'll never forget him saying that. And uh, I just chased him out into the street at 106 North Albany and Kennedy Avenue there. And it, I just left him lying in the street. And I feel bad about that to this. I mean, this day, you know, I'm sorry that it went that far, but it just, uh, he set me off. Mm-hmm. And, and, and Buddy Colt's wife wouldn't speak to me until about three years ago. Really? That long wow. she held that grudge against me. Wow. But I, I, I imagine uh, not only was it a tremendous lesson for that individual, but but for you too, that uh, you you kind of kind of saw that 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 was in you. But at the same time, uh, you know, you learned you weren't that kind of person. Right. I, I you know, I'm I'm a true competitor, and, and uh, whatever I do, I want to win. But right. I I've never wanted to hurt anybody, and, uh, except that time. Just, Except that. <laughs> well, no, a couple other times. I've, yeah, I think exactly. I've been in uh, six shoots in the business. I never started one, but I never lost one. Yeah, I, I can't imagine. Uh, so uh, this kind of, I would imagine, catapulted you along uh, because uh, then you really you started working. I don't know, was it shortly after that? I mean, you did some stuff with the CWF, and then uh, you even mentioned your first match was with uh, Pat Patterson and, and Ivan Koloff. Um, yes, so, uh, what, you know, what time frame are we talking about? Cause this is where it really begins as far as you, t- you right. launching we're into in, this new world. We're in like, uh, June of 77. Yeah. And, wow. You're, uh, man, you're young. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. 19. Yeah. Uh, well, I graduated from school when I was 17. Yeah. I was probably, uh, 19 and a half, 20. Oh, okay. And, uh, um, um, a referee didn't something happened to one of the referees so eddie graham flew me to um to jacksonville in his airplane and then i worked the whole week as a referee but my first day as a referee before i started wrestling i had a week of refereeing and i didn't know how to referee and so i didn't really know i was going to referee uh until he just said it that day and so I'm trying to ask some questions, you know, what do you do? He said, it's, everybody said the same thing, you know, it's, it's just like amateur wrestling because they wouldn't smart me up. You know, mm-hmm. K-Fade was big, right. Right. They, you know, they still had not smarted me up. Uh-huh. So I still didn't take a, you know, um, um, you know, we, we'd walk through some stuff, but you know, they would say now you were taking a bump with full speed when you do it full speed, you know, you do it yeah. full speed, but we're going to walk through. So we do some little things, but, uh, when it when it came back to being a referee, I knew what an a- amateur referee did when the yeah. shoulders were down at the count of three, they're pinned. Um, yeah. Three seconds, boom, you're down. And so it was uh, Angelo Poffo and, um, oh, godly, uh, Vashon, Butcher Vashon. Oh, boy. And in Jacksonville. And they didn't tell me the finish or anything like that. And I you know, I kind of knew, you know, I knew it was at work, but because nobody could take that much punishment. Yeah. But anyway, again, how, were, how stiff was it though? Then you, you, you said they hadn't really smartened you up, but I mean, how stiff was it back then? Oh, they were real stiff, man. <laughs> I, I'll never forget. Oh God. After, um, when, uh, Greg's father, oh my gosh, Greg Valentine's father, Johnny came in as the booker after the plane crash, he was on crutches. And of course, I'm always the laughing stock because I'm the young guy. So he's given all these guys uh, a talk about how he's the new booker and he wants everybody to 
to tighten up, to be snug. And he goes, when you lay a, when you lay a forearm in, this is how I want you to do it. He goes, Blair, come here. So I said, yes, sir. So I'm just standing there and he hit me so hard that I just dropped to my knees and, (laughs) and, uh, you know, this guy still on crutches and everything. Powerful, powerful man. Yeah. And, uh, so, you know, I, I really didn't know what to expect. And then the first match rolled around. It was uh, Skip Young and I against uh, Ivan Koloff and Pat Patterson in a tag match for television. And um, um, uh, they uh, shikanned me, threw me out of the ring, and uh, uh, pinned Skip. And, you know, that was my first match. Mm. From there. This kept rolling. Went to Kansas City, um, to Watts' territory, to not just... Uh, a lot of a lot of different territories. Yeah, and you worked with uh, with Tri-State, and uh, I, I want to talk about this because uh, a lot of people have talked about working with Leroy McGurk. Uh, and and uh, we just, I had a conversation with Jim Ross, who worked with when Watts and, and McGurk were teamed up. Uh, what was it like to work with that guy? Well, uh, Leroy was different. He actually one time tried to shoot me. But yeah, uh, <laughs> you know, Jim Ross tells a story of how uh, he wanted to shoot uh, Ted DiBiase that he yeah, had, exactly. and he was blind, right? I mean, he was pretty right. much blind, and uh, he kind of got him to avoid that situation. But I mean, I guess he thought there was no circumstance to actually shooting somebody. No, he carried that gun everywhere, and. Um, Oh, gosh. You know, at first, I didn't know if he was, I knew uh, he didn't want his uh, daughter dating wrestlers. Uh, you know, the DiBiase thing was blew up and he was all upset with her about that. And so, and here I come along, another wrestler. And, uh, Mike invites me, Michael Kathleen invites me to the house. And so I'm yeah, like, no, he didn't even want her to be a woman. I mean, he called her Mike. So, right. Yeah. Yeah. He wanted her to be a, yeah, he wanted her to be a son. So her name's Michael Kathleen. So, yeah. You know, we're good friends even to this day. I mean, she's yeah. a sweet and well, she, uh, she was, I mean, during the time when I was with the WWF and she was uh, one of the ring announcers, which she's still very much remembered uh, for that, that time. Yeah, I remember when you were with WWF. Yeah. But uh, it, you, you, um, you got to understand Leroy is kind of bitter, you know, about losing his eye. And he's always accusing Dorothy of going out on her and mm-hmm. things like that. And I'm listening to all this family stuff, you know, family bickering. And, but the first time I was in the house... Leroy had never met me and Mike invited me over and he said, she said, my dad's not going to be there. Well, the car was gone. Dorothy was gone, but Leroy was in the back room sleeping. So I'm in the kitchen and I hear Michael say, Shh. and here comes Leroy and he's walking oh, with his hands in front of him. And I'm thinking, oh man, is this a work or what? Is he going to just kick my ass? What's, what's going to happen? And he's got his hands and he's walking and Sean, I, I, I promise you, he came within six inches of me, and I'm trying to hold my breath and not make a move or a peep because I know he's going to kill me. And are so, you working for him at the time? Uh, yes, I am. So I'm okay. working with you, didn't you? Didn't you know you stay away from the boss's daughter? <laughs> well, yeah, I, I like guess dangerously. Yeah, I guess you know. I was young. I was uh, you know. 21, 22 years old, whatever. Uh, just, yeah. just young. Didn't listen, I guess, uh, as much as I should have. But um, so he's six you know, inches I, away I, from your face. <laughs> yeah, and so he, he. I'm just scared to death that he's actually gonna. He's actually looking at me, 
and he's going to sucker punch me or something. And I can't lift my arms up. I've got my arms glued to the, to the wall. Like, a, you know, like a, a picture on the, on the wall. And he just barely misses me and passes me and goes to the refrigerator. And I, I just slowly, I had tennis shoes on. I never forget. I had white, um, um, Kid, not kids. Uh, what do you call those? Chucks, white chucks on. Yeah, okay. <laughs> old white chucks on and a, Converse. a pair of blue jeans. Yeah, Converse. And um, so I, I uh, just kind of got out and slipped out and and left. <laughs> we didn't have cell phones then or anything, but you know, and something tells me you didn't learn your lesson. No, I thought <laughs> about that. I didn't, Sean. I uh, <laughs> so you were you were briefly married. Uh, I was married for a year. A year, yeah, married for a year, and it, and that didn't end well. No, it didn't. Um, it didn't end well at all. Um, so I left with uh, with my boat and five hundred dollars and some clothes, and I stopped at uh, Leroy's. Well, I wound up getting in a fight with uh, Doug Summers and tore up Leroy's office completely. I mean. I just threw him into the walls and stuff was falling. Yeah, so this guy, we should give a little background. The, uh, Doug Summers was what was he was he was also a wrestler and he worked for McGurk, and he uh, got involved with your wife. wife. Yes, he started when when you know Mike and I. She stopped. You know, she would go to the towns and count the money and stuff, and we'd usually ride together. And I'd let Summers ride with us sometimes. He'd ask for a ride. All of a sudden, you know. Mike and I are riding together and I find out she's riding with him. And all of a sudden I find out, you know, she knows we're getting a divorce. And so she's starting to date Doug Summers. And I didn't like that idea, obviously. Yeah. So, so this is the <laughs> second time you wanted to hurt somebody really badly. Yes. And, uh, <laughs> <laughs> you're so funny. Sean. So I'd anyway, like I to look back at it now though, I mean, cause I wouldn't, if it was something you didn't want to discuss, but it sounds <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, what happens is I, I I didn't know what happened to him. All I knew was that uh, a few people came in and he was laying on the floor like lifeless. And I got a few wrestlers got me away and I left and I was crying. You know, I was upset. Got my uh, 72 powder blue Lincoln Continental with uh, got my, you know, Boat went to uh, Leroy's house just to say goodbye because I, I had ca- just called uh, David and told him about what time I would be in and yeah. that I would pull over and give him a call so he knew and um, David Von Eric okay. and um, I just wanted to see Mike and tell her goodbye. You know, there was just something that said, "Well, you know, I don't care what happened. I just want to at least tell her goodbye and I'll always love her." And, uh, so how did David Von Eric fit into this? Where we see one of the well, well, David would come up and work for us, and okay. and and Kevin and Carrie, yeah, yeah. and that's uh, a whole other story, isn't it? Talking about the Von Erichs. Oh yeah, I lived with David for a year and a half. Yeah. So I just saw it. I just stayed with Kevin in Kauai for three days, uh, wow. getting ready to go back um, uh, in June. So, um, but uh, yeah, they became very very close to me and. Um, uh, Town, and you make There's the decision so that it's a good idea to go by Leroy McGurk's house. Yes. So I'm at the house. daughter after you've torn up, uh, beaten up one of his wrestlers and destroyed his office. Okay. Yes. That's where we are. Yes. <laughs> so, I, so now I get to the house and I knock on the door and Leroy comes to the door. He goes, who is it? And I said, Leroy, it's Brian. I just want to say goodbye to Michael. 
he just cussed me like a sailor. And goes, hey, I'm going to go get my gun. Da, 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 da. So I ran to my car. I didn't know what to do. So I'm sitting in my car now thinking to myself, what am I going to do? What am I going to do? I don't want to get shot. I know he's got that gun. Da, 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 da. He can't see me. I'm just all these thoughts are going through my head. So I said, well, I got to at least see Mike. So I go to the front window. I can't see anything. Go around. Finally, I get to the back window where I can see like the inside where the couch is. And there's like a mummy laying on the couch. And I see Mike uh, feeding somebody soup through this ca- uh, full headed cast. And uh, Doug Summers laying on the couch, and (laughs) he's feeding him soup. So that really kind of pissed me off. So I go back around to the front door, and this time I knock on the door. And and when you walk, there's like a sidewalk across the front of the house, and then you turn left to get to the door. Um, It's brick in the front, and then you turn left, and and it's about six feet indention, and there's the door. Well, I knock on the door, and all of a sudden the door whizzes open and there's a gun and he opens up the screen door and I, when I saw the gun I automatically went around to the brick for protection out of that hallway area and he's got his car parked right in front of the thing and he starts going blam 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 wow see the bullets flying up right next to his tire he had <laughs> all over his hubcap uh, on his Lincoln Continental and I thought shit man I better just go <laughs> and I was yeah scared. that was probably a good idea Thank God he was blind. Yeah, thank God he was blind. Oh, Oh, gosh. Uh, So I went to uh, David Von Erich's house, and when I got there, he had a surprise for me. I won't even talk about it. But but he was just, we became such wonderful, wonderful friends, and I just love that family so much. Well, the tragedy that that family has endured. Yes. uh, Like I said, that's an episode down the road. I I would love to get a hold of, uh, of Kevin and talk with him and, uh, about the family because I uh, Carrie was an awesome kid. I mean, yes. But uh, so that was kind of your uh, that kind of ruined that territory for you, I would say. So yeah, I think that's uh, the first time I ever burned a bridge. <laughs> Blew it up. Uh, never Blew it again. Up. But I, I mean, I've heard stories about what it was like to work with Lee Warren McGurk. It, it sounded like it was an adventure for anybody uh, who had that opportunity. Uh, so. Um, when did you first encounter Vince Sr.? Because then you started to climb the ladder. And I'm always interested to find out because, you know, Brian, there are, and even at this point in time, there are thousands and thousands and thousands of wannabe professional wrestlers out there. But there uh, are only the few, the the elite, that really, uh, you know, get to a level to where they could compete on, in a in a a forum like with the WWWF at the time. There were some other big territories back then, of course. But I'm always interested to find out, you know, how you uh, you climbed up that ladder. And how did it happen to where you got to the point where you were good enough to to go to somewhere like New York and work, regardless if you're an enhancement talent or not? Well, um, first off, um, let me just say this. I don't like the term enhancement talent because of this. I've worked um, on hundreds of main events, lots of first matches, just like so many other people have, and everybody busted their ass, and it takes a whole card. If you put a main event in a, an arena, just one match, you, that might uh, draw one time, and maybe, but right. it takes an entire card. Uh, from the first match, you have to have a 
good opening first match. I was always taught this. I've booked before. I'm, I know the wrestling business inside and out, upside and down. And it takes an entire card to, to create a package, a total show that will um, bring people back time and time again. And angles are done in the early matches to go into main events in other towns and semi-main events. So, you know, when, when you use the word enhancement talent, and I've said this to other guys that use that word, and which is kind of seems to be becoming more and more popular. Well, because they used to say really jobber. Remember, I mean, jobber was Yeah, it used to be a jobber, a jobber. Yeah, I hated that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Enhancement is probably better than a jobber, but, um, you know, everybody to me, you know, whether it was, um, um, what was the guy that got beat so many times here, Jack Hart, um, uh, then he went to, um, I never see him anymore when I have legends, lunches, Barry Horowitz. Who yeah, got, although there were uh, a lot of them. I mean, Steve, but, Steve Lombardi, uh, yeah, worked you know, for they, years. they worked yeah. hard. They worked hard, yeah. you know, the, uh, Johnny Rods, you know, all those guys. But, but the way I got to go to Vince was, the Florida tape went to New York and the, all the people in the New York area saw Florida wrestling and Vince mm-hmm. senior called Eddie Graham and said, when, uh, when you're done with, um, Brian Blair, I'd like to have him. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, um, uh, Eddie sent me to Vince and then I got along really good with Vince. Um, uh, Hulkster came there. Uh, he was there for a while and, um, I'll never forget, we were talking at Poughkeepsie TV to Vince Sr. Uh, Terry was talking more than I was. He was we were, had to wait in a line, and Vince Sr. was such a gentleman. You know, he didn't cut in line or anything. He just waited with the boys. Mm-hmm. And uh, he, Mr. McMahon Sr., is time, it's time for him to pee, and Terry's still talking to him while he's peeing, you know, because you got mm-hmm. your back to each other. And we're all kind of listening, and he turns around and doesn't flush the toilet, he, but we say goodbye, and all of a sudden, Terry goes, Brian, look. And I looked, and the whole toilet was full of blood. Mm. And I thought, shit, wow, what is, golly. So we knew something was wrong with Vince Sr. And wasn't long Back after then. that, the cancer. And this was what about, was this 82? Yeah, right. I think that's probably there. He sent me to Japan my first time yeah. in 80 right. or 81. And then, uh, you know, I, I, went, I went back and forth a couple times. And I always enjoyed it there. One time, Vince Jr. came to me after a match with Mr. Wonderful Paul Orndorff that you can see on YouTube uh, from St. Louis. Um, he came up to me afterwards and he said, to both Paul and I, and he said, I got to tell you guys, and I mean this, this, that was the best match I've ever seen in my life. And when wow. Vince Jr. told Paul and I that, I yeah. thought, wow, wow, how nice is that? Mm. And he said it in front of a whole bunch of boys too. And how influential was he with the company at that time? Um, you know, I really don't know, Sean. It's such a good question because he, I watched Vince kind of grow with the company, Vince Jr. And, um, he became more and more involved as his dad got sick prior to that. I don't know how much influence he had on his father. Yeah. Um, you know, that would be kind of more of a inside thing because you had Arnold Scotland, Scotland around, you had yeah. uh, Gorilla Monsoon around and, yeah. uh, you know, all of, uh, Vince seniors, you know, right hand guys. Yeah. yeah. And so, you know, then junior would be there, but whoever, I don't know who had his ear the, the most. Right. But you but, knew, you could tell he was starting to have influence with that, with that, uh, that company. 
early on. Oh, oh yeah, and and Vince Senior told Junior when he died how to take over the wrestling industry. Uh-huh. He said through cable television. You know, if you recall back in like '85, I w- I was in Atlanta, mm-hmm. and it, the TBS was the first uh, station um, to have wrestling that went all around the country. Right. And um, super station, yeah, the super station. That's right. Yeah. And so we started going Tito Santana and Orndorff, and uh, Tommy Rich was on fire. Then Wildfire Tommy Rich, um, yeah. who was traded uh, for a couple other guys, made a deal with somebody, but uh, Atlanta wanted him. And they made a big star out of him, and mm-hmm. you know Tommy just kind of uh, a great guy. I mean, I love Tommy every time I see him, but he just kind of you know every time they gave him a chance, he'd blow it up his nose. Right. And um, um, believe me, that guy was over like you wouldn't believe. But we'd go into Columbus, Ohio and to these different venues. And that's what Senior was showing Junior at the time. And there's a long story in between there where uh, the Briscoes owned part of TBS. And uh, they wound up making a lot of money because uh, Vince bought TBS for a million and wound up uh selling it let's see how was it he he bought it for two million and wound up selling it back for a million i think was the deal. And, yeah he uh, got a lot of resistance uh that's when uh, turner started getting and in, getting involved and and he just out of dislike uh you know he, he helped move that front so that he was pushed out they couldn't get uh you know placement and uh that's that's kind of how that went down yeah, I was wondering exactly. Really, heard that, go ahead. I, I heard different stories. I heard that Vince needed the money for WrestleMania. No, I mean there was a lot of uh, of uh, backstory to that, uh, and especially that's how eventually Turner got into the wrestling business or whatever he used to call it. Um, but uh, you you mentioned how you know, and this is I mean you talk about you know Vince Senior. Now I'd always heard that he was not a big fan of Vince jr's plan to take it across the country. And so that's, that's interesting because you mean, you know how, you know how it was back then. It was, it was like mafia territory in a sense without the, you know, uh, whacking people or something, but you didn't, you didn't cringe on other people's territories. And, uh, you know, Vince uh, senior had the, had the North, and then, you know, you had uh, all the different ones. They had the Florida, Florida Territory, the Texas area, you know, Georgia. And uh, that's, that's interesting. You, you think that he had an influence on him, at least, at least putting that idea in his head. And once a year, they all met in Las Vegas. And yeah. Leroy McGurk gave me a Halliburton briefcase with his name on it. Told me he wanted me to have it. And mm-hmm. uh, this was long before. <laughs> yeah, he was in South. But he wanted me to have it. So he gave it to me. And uh, I had noticed that there was a folder in there with a bunch of stuff. And I said, Leroy, do you want this uh, folder with the stuff? He said, I can't read it. Just keep it. Mm-hmm. So what it was is I still have it right here um, in my awards room. I have uh, all the minutes from the NWA meetings. And wow. Vince McMahon Sr. was in attendance. And they would determine so like all the heads of the family would meet in Vegas. Yeah. All year. the heads of the family, yeah, Don yeah, Owens from yeah, Portland, yeah, every, yeah. you know, uh, um, Harley race and uh, Geigel and O'Connor from Kansas city and, you know, uh, Bill Watts, just, uh, who, whomever, uh, um, Bill Watts, 
I don't think Bill Watts was on that one. Bill Watts and Leroy were still partners. I don't know if he went or not. I'd have to look at what names are on there, but the names that are on there would just blow your mind. You'd know every one of them. And they'd meet and they would discuss the world champion. I mean, you can see everything they discussed on the notes. So. Like trading talent and, uh, and, and I guess just to make sure everybody was uh, good with, with everybody's territory, I guess, in a sense. Right, and how the world, who was going to be the world champion, how he was going to be used, how much he would get paid, um, who was going to book him. Um, and, uh, you know, because yeah. during that time, it was, you know, Briscoe and the Funks uh, and Harley Race were the, were the champions, and then Flair came along. And, yeah. uh, but they would exchange talent, these territories, right? Because it was, yes. you know, you didn't have the exposure. You couldn't, certainly couldn't do it today, but back then, you didn't have the, the television coverage that you have. And so you could have, you know, Bruno San Martino go somewhere for, you know, when his, uh, whatever run he had with somebody and have him go away for a few months and have somebody else new come in that, that somebody else hadn't seen. Uh, that was, that was common. Absolutely. Sean, it sure was. And, um, they, they did a lot of horse trading in those uh, meetings in Vegas. It's kind of ironic that I'm back there now with the cauliflower alley club. <laughs> I'd love to see that folder sometime, but that's got, uh, some interesting. Sure. I'll have to take some pictures and send them to you. Yeah. I'd love to see it. Uh, but, uh, and I want to get back quickly cause you mentioned about enhancement talent and, and, uh, to me that, that isn't a slight in any way to, to the boys that, you know, the, the men that did this, because that's how you, uh, were discovered. And, and there isn't one single superstar who at some point didn't do that in order to get noticed. And then you had, as you mentioned, uh, you know, someone like Barry Horowitz, uh, or, or Steve Lombardi who, were made a living doing that because they were so good at helping to put over talent. Like if they had a new guy coming in that they were really big on pushing, uh, they didn't want to put him out there with somebody that, you know, that he was just going to squash. I mean, you got to had to, you had to have somebody who, who knew, uh, how to work out there to, to put the guy over. And, and that in itself is an art. Yeah. As a matter of fact, uh, the old timers called them carpenters. Right. Yeah. Do you remember that? Yeah, that's a term. Um, yeah, they, they called them carpenters, and then the term jobbers came from somewhere, and I never really liked that term, and because I always, always thought, you know, like, um, you know, I was no better than um, whoever was doing a job. Now we had regular squash. Didn't you see that though? When you squash got guys, right? But, right. but let me just put this in right here, Sean. You'd have guys that would come in and just do three and five minute squash jobs, one minute, two minute squash guys, you know. To me, that those guys weren't in the same category as a Barry Horowitz or a Johnny Rods or uh, somebody like that, if you know what I'm saying. Yeah, or Mike Sharp or somebody that they yeah. would have. Yeah, exactly. I mean, they were guys that made they made a, a living doing that because they it was, like you said, they were, uh, you know, master carpenters. I don't know whatever you, you, <laughs> you would call <laughs> yeah. but But yeah, really, exactly. but isn't that, uh, you know, when, when you were first with the WWWF, uh, that's how you, when you came up, that you really impressed uh, Vince Senior, and and other things went on from there. They sent you to Japan, which is a whole other different development that you learn uh, so many other things. I know, I mean, I know they sent uh, you know Terry over there for uh, you know to develop, and you come back here and you're you've got a whole other different uh, level to you, a different you know layer of of professional uh, skills. Absolutely. And I love Japan. I've worked for New Japan uh, 
25, 28 tours there. And, um, you know, they, they always treated me great. I've even got some of the, I think I've got four or five of the yellow suitcases they used to give us every tour. They'd give us one suitcase for each tour, a yellow New Japan Pro Wrestling. It was the ugliest yellow. I used to kind of not really like carrying it because of that color. But <laughs> anyway, uh, I wound up wearing black and yellow. But uh, it was, uh, and it almost matches my my tights, so it's <laughs> kind of cool now. It worked. But uh, um, you know, just to have those old things and think about how, you know, they when they wanted you to develop and wanted you to go from being a carpenter to to uh, bricklayer, uh, whatever you want to call them, foreman. Um, you, uh, um, you know, you went to the different territories, and uh, they would help you do that. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I was Don Owens. Always was always trying to get me to come to his territory. There were several territories that wanted me to go there, but I was always pretty happy where I was at. Mm-hmm. You know, the Kansas City territory, being there for oh, close to a to close to a year. Jesse Ventura and I had adjoining apartments for six months, and we used to ride down the road together and riding with Jesse wow. is uh, very interesting. You know, yeah. you've got to be a, got to be a good listener. Um, <laughs> yes. And, uh, Somebody asked me one time, what was it like to talk to Jesse? I said, well, it's great. As long as you want to talk about Jesse. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. So I would always, uh, you know, just drive and sit there and listen and he'd rock back and forth and put yeah. that dip in his mouth and yeah. talk politics, talk all kinds of stuff. Yeah. You know, I he like, always had the answers to solve it. Yeah. Always an interesting conversation. That must have been uh, quite an experience having him as a neighbor. <laughs> oh, it was he had a little pit bull named Arnold, and I'll never forget. Here, you know, there, there, I was a tag team champion, Central States tag team champion with Bob Brown, just like half the other town. And uh, uh, finally, they work an angle with Jesse Ventura and I. Mm-hmm. And the people were so used to seeing like the same older guys. They pushed a lot of older guys. And when Jesse and I, uh, Jesse did a tremendous interview and um, I don't know what they did, uh, but we sold the Kansas state, the big building out in Kansas city. And there were half as many people again, outside as there mm-hmm. were inside and, O'Connor and Geigo and Harley were just freaking out. They were so happy. I mean, I, I mean, they were so, so happy. They were so happy they forgot to give us a finish. No. And so Jesse and I are both still green. And mm-hmm. we go out to the ring, and I chase Jesse around the ring, chase him around the ring. Finally, he gets in, and he starts begging off, begging off, begging off. And I didn't know anything better. He gets up, goes to, goes to hit me. I block it and hit him, and I had never heard that kind of sound in my life that, you know, like the roof's going off. And so every time I hit him or did punch or kicked him or clothesline him, back drop him, it was boom, boom, boom. So I just, we just kept getting that womb and we thought we were doing a fabulous job. So he takes off, goes out of the ring and I chase him to the back. Well, we get back there and I mean, Bob Geigel, uh, threw his glasses down. Pat O'Connor's got that smirk on his face and Harley's grabbing his chin, looking straight down. I thought, Oh God, what did we do? What did we do? And then, then they went through the whole tirade. Jesse, why didn't you stop him and get some heat? Brian, why didn't you tell him to stop you and get some heat? Get a hold. We had to go through all that stuff. You know, they thought we, 
you know, we knew everything and we drew the house and I guess they were just leaving it to us to come back with a, with a finish that would want make the people want to come back. And we weren't yeah. that smart. <laughs> just weren't that smart. You're just dancing out there. Yeah, we just oh, wound true. up in a place that we got by, you know, God, I don't know how, how else we got there. Did you, uh, did you know back then, uh, just hanging with Jesse, um, just how great an entertainer he was? And, and I, I don't know if there's, you know, I, I didn't get to see too many of his wrestling promos, but I, I certainly loved him as an announcer. And I, I don't think there's anybody else who paired with Vince better. I, I, I know, and I, I had, uh, you know, my thoughts about how I thought Vince did play by play and what, but I thought together that those two were great. The balance, the same to me as like, you know, Gorilla and, and, uh, and Bobby, I thought that they were a great tag team. Did you see back then that he had that, uh, I don't know, whatever you want to call it, it. Yeah. He had the it factor for sure. Uh, Sean and, um, um, you know, I knew, I knew that he was special when I'd watch him do the promos and he'd come out with the uh, imitation superstar Billy Graham right. gimmick. And, uh, you know, he did it a little different and, uh, he, you know, he did it good and superstar couldn't be everywhere. And um, a lot of people didn't put the two and two together that, you know, he was kind of emulating superstar, but he took off and did it a different way. And Jesse has a certain cockiness about him, as you know, Sean, mm-hmm. that, and confidence that he will let, let nobody entertain, uh, excuse me, uh, he, he will not let, let nobody uh, intimidate him. Yeah. And so I think it was the factor that Vince Jr. really respected Jesse for that factor, that non, non-intimidation factor. Vince knew that he couldn't intimidate him. Mm-hmm. And um, so they just, you know, played off of each other just like they were you know in, in harmony and I, I think that uh, that's why Vince really you know uh, gelled so well with Jesse yeah. just like you yeah, said. Yeah I mean it worked there's no question about it uh, but, but uh, let's get back to 83 now this is when everything is uh, is coming together I, sh- I should say I think uh, you know Vince was taking over uh, you were there uh, in 83, I think that, uh, for a little bit, and then you went to, uh, I went back down to, uh, Florida, Georgia, Georgia champ. Did you go to Georgia championship wrestling too? Did you work with, uh, yes, yes. I went to, I went to Georgia. So what, was, what was going on then? Did you see like the, the WWF is, is really changing drastically, really fast. And I'm fortunately getting to watch the whole metamorphosis and, you know, even when I then when I came back uh, right after WrestleMania one, um, yeah, with the Killer Bees, and um, since Terry and I were so close, you know, Hulkster uh, was one of my best men in my wedding. Him and Mister Wonderful and my little brother to the woman that I'm married to now for thirty thirty uh-huh. years. So, um, uh, but uh, you found the right uh, one. <laughs> yeah, finally, finally. So uh, most of the time. <laughs> so, yeah, that's awesome. But, but uh, anyway, um, um, what was I going to say? Oh, so um, I would just ride on the planes, uh, on the Learjets. The, all of a sudden, it went from the car and tuna yeah. fish with Bruiser Brody um, to you know jet styling with uh, Vince McMahon Jr. and Hulk Hogan. I mean, we were. So did we that? But did. Yeah, but did that uh, come together? Now you're talking 85 when you came back. And this is, like you said, this is when Vince 
you know, put everything on. Yeah, he, he just and, and it worked. And and you came in and just as that wave started, uh, it was what was uh, Hulkster's suggestion that, hey, why don't we pair Brian up with Jim Brunzel? How did that, yes. How did that come about? Yeah. Um, well, it came about because um, um, Vince, uh, Vince Jr. always knew uh, that we had good rapport. I wanted to come back there. I told him when the time was right, um, I wanted to go get more experience and come back in a better spot. Mm-hmm. Um, and he was all for that. He was like a, a very strong supporter. And that's why, you know, I have nothing but good things to say about Vince. I mean, he's cocky. Uh, he's very assured of himself. Um, and um, a lot of people don't like him for different reasons, but all I can say is that he never cheated me. Mm-hmm. He was honest to me, and I never saw him do anything that was, um, you know, that was really bad. Anything, I don't have anything bad to say about the man. Mm-hmm. He, he yeah. was very good to me. He, I mean, I never paid for a thing when we'd go somewhere, um, whether it was a, a Learjet, a limousine, food. You know, we wined and dined with kings and queens like Dusty yeah. used to say yeah. <laughs> before we used yeah. to sleep in alleys and eat pork and beans. Right. And all of a sudden, we're uh, moving up into uh, big time. And uh, it was it was great to watch that transition, you know, from the WWF to the to the WWF and to WrestleMania from, you know, just the New York towns and uh, the New Jersey towns and the, and the Northeast Territory, Philadelphia and all those places. They were all great, but they became electrifying once WrestleMania started and once rock and wrestling started. And, you know, it just uh, blossomed from there and it's never stopped. Yeah. And what was it like to go from, you know, you're working arenas where, you know, if there's 2000 people there, that's a big that's a big gate to when you see this all happening. And you mentioned at the top uh, when we started our conversation of how, you know, it went mainstream. And here you're going from, you know, these small arenas to suddenly, you know, they're doing very big arenas where you've got 10, 12,000 people. Uh, what was that like when, I don't know if you remember the first time there was a really big crowd you were in front of, but uh, it, it, it must have been pretty awe-inspiring when you, when you saw it happening. Yeah, you know, I, I I tell you, Sean, it was you know being in in Tampa wrestling in the Armory sold out in front of thirty two hundred people. Uh, that was big time to me. And uh, you know, being we'd go to St. Petersburg and have ten thousand people in Florida still. And, and you know, back in the seventies, uh, late seventies, but uh, in the early eighties. But then when you go into venues where you've got thirty thousand. Uh, whatever Madison square garden holds and yeah. what a rush it is to work there to, you know, to Nassau Coliseum, to Brendan Byrne arena, to, you know, Philadelphia spectrum and to all the different places we went to and they're all sold out. It's, it's an amazing feeling. And, um, yeah. Yeah, you know, you're out there in a modified pair of underwear and you're uh, <laughs> trying to, you know, to dance with somebody yeah. and uh, make the people believe that you're dancing good and that what you're doing is real. And, uh, you know, I, I I mentioned I call it the golden era, but I also think it would it should be called the tag team era. What do you think it was about that period of time and uh, that tag teams were incredibly popular? And I look back at all the different teams between the Hart Foundation and Demolition and Legion of Doom. And why were tag teams uh, so popular then? Well, that was, it was by design. 
um, Vince and George Scott um, designed that. And uh, it's like, um, you know, when we came together as Killer Bees in Brantford, Ontario, I'll never forget that. I met Jimmy there and uh, George Scott says, uh, hey, we need a name for you guys. I only talked to Jimmy for maybe an hour and said, we, we need a name for you guys, uh, something catchy. Um, I'm trying to, I said, what do you mean? He said, I, I don't know, just something catchy, you know, uh, think of something. So um, he walks away and he says, by the way, you're on in an hour. Don't need a name. <laughs> so Vince wants a name and I'll, I'll be thinking too, you guys think. So anyway, we're talking and something, one thing led to another. And I said, uh, Jimmy, did you ever watch uh, the Miami Dolphins, uh, the 72 football team? Do you remember them? They had uh, uh, their linebackers all began with a B and they called them the killer bees. And, uh-huh. I, and I always thought that was so cool that they yeah. were the killer bees, you know, because I was a big dolphin fan, Bon Nick yeah. Bonacani and yeah. all these guys. And um, so Jimmy said, uh, the killer bees, uh, mm. kind of, you know, it goes like, kind of like that he goes yeah the killer bees and um blair brunzel blair and brunzel exactly that's what jimmy said yeah blair, brunzel. so um so uh george comes up to us he hadn't even left the room yet i don't know if he came up or we called him over or what and we said uh and lanny poffel was sitting right there and we said george how about the killer bees and he goes the killer bees the killer bees he goes i like that let me see what vince thinks mm-hmm. he, comes back five minutes later and he goes vince loves it you guys are the killer bees and lanny poffo goes yeah and he pulls up pulls out a pair of yellow and black trunks and he had already had a pair of killer bee trunks you know the black the same ones we wore we just designed them right after <laughs> ones lanny had right there so uh, lanny retired those trunks and <laughs> that day hey isn't it interesting though that they gave you that much creative freedom back then i've had a you know you talked to a lot of people that uh, during that period of time, and I know it's nothing like that today, but you, you know, you actually got to come up with something. Uh, you had the the mass confusion. Uh, that's all stuff that you guys, you know, uh, it, it on top of everything else, besides being skilled in the ring, you also had to be pretty creative in order to to become uh, a popular superstar. Yeah, absolutely. You had to define yourself and you had to know what you wanted to be. And you, you know, you watch and they let you do else. it though. And, uh, and you know, to be creative, I guess you just learn from the people that you're around when you're around talent, like Eddie Graham and, and Bill Watts, you learn to become creative because they're creative thinkers. And, mm-hmm. you know, I, I'll never forget the angle that I did with Jesse Barr when we sold, we went around this state and sold every town out for weeks and weeks when I, uh, Jesse wouldn't give me a title shot and, um, you know, he was a little bit green, but he was, he was learning and he was a heel and it's okay when you're a heel and and you're learning a little bit. And, um, he was still good though. I mean, don't get me wrong. He wasn't, he wasn't green. And, um, he has just had a little bit of tough times with his promos, which we all did. And until you find yourself and, um, and I, I kind of just admired Jack Briscoe and that style. And I, I want to just be the wrestler, you know, more of the wrestling, wrestling guy. I didn't want to be a muscle head, a beefed up, you know, steroid guy. Not that I never took steroids before because I have, but never, I, I think I took uh, uh, six bottles of Deca during a six week period was the most steroids that I ever took. And, you know, you see Tony Atlas, I got stories and stories, but uh, one, one night he hit himself with uh 
six cc's of three cc's and each cheek butt before him and orndorff got in a fight coming back from uh, wheeling west virginia with tommy rich in the car that's another story mm-hmm. orndorff did his ear off but um <clears throat> anyway um you learn um and you, you started that story brian you got to finish it now Okay. Um, so, so anyway, this is, and it kind of goes with what we're talking about. It was the cable days. And so now we're starting the cable days with uh, TBS mm-hmm. and uh, we're going to Wheeling, West Virginia, um, out of Atlanta. And it's Tony Atlas in the car in the front, in the front seat. And we're in a car I'm driving. Um, Tommy Rich is behind me and Paul is behind Tony. We get to the town and Tony had been grouchy all the way there and not bad, but you know, tolerable. And Tony's mm. usually not so like that. I mean, I get along great with Tony House, especially, you know, now, since this thing that I'm about to tell you happened. Mm. Well, um, <laughs> he gets to finish and he's got to do a job. And he starts slamming all the locker room, all the lockers, you know, the steel lockers and the place we're dressing at. And man, everybody's just on their tiptoes, you know, they don't know what this guy's going to do. Yeah. And next thing I look and he's got a syringe of test full three CCs in one cheek and a uh, thing full of DECA in the other cheek. And and the reason I know he told us what it was. So this is like more steroids. And I can imagine taking in, you know, he's taken in at one time and I can imagine taking in 10 weeks. So um, he's saying, Nobody can kick my ass but Andre the Giant. Nobody can kick my ass. Maybe Andre the Giant. I could probably kick his ass. And he's just going on and on and on. Mm. Finally, we get in the car. And, you know, Tommy Rich is really on needles now because he's Tommy's. <laughs> um, well, when I, I got to kind of traverse back for just a second. When, when I first went to uh, um, Watts' territory, Orndorff was already there. Yeah. And, uh, Carl Cox, Killer Carl Cox, and Dick Murdoch took uh, Orndorff and I in, and uh, we would ride with him. And uh, Dick Murdoch had a uh, uh, like a big Pontiac or something with a long bench seat, and we'd sit in the back. And Murdoch could pull that bench seat all the way back, so we'd have to sit sideways with our knees together, facing each other. <laughs> and uh, so. <laughs> yeah, anyway now fast forward here we are in the car coming back uh from uh from wheeling west virginia i had to tell you that first so you would understand what yeah. happened so um um everybody's in the car we're we're driving back and and paul says to tony tony's going on and on and really making people uncomfortable and tony mm-hmm. says hey murdoch could you move that seat up and give me a couple more inches of the room and boy, that set Atlas off. He goes, what do you mean, Orndorff calling me Murdoch? That redneck guy, da, 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 yeah, guy, God, don't you right. ever call me Murdoch again or I'm going to kick your ass. And Paul says, you ain't going to kick my ass. You might kick somebody else's ass, but you're not going to kick my ass. And I'm thinking to myself, oh, shit. Man, this is gonna be and Tommy Rich is going, <laughs> now, guys, now, guys, please settle down, guys. Guys, we don't need any of this now. He's really getting pansy-ish, freaking out. So um, all of a sudden, uh they're really into it, lipping it, and finally says, well, let's pull over, and, I'm gonna, and I'll kick your ass, Orndorff, and Orndorff says, yeah, pull over, uh, beep, he says, he called him beeper, long story, so um, he goes, beeper, pull over, I said, uh, man, you guys don't want to fight, and Tommy Ritz goes, please, guys, please, please don't fight, <laughs> he's almost got tears in his eyes, and 
Paul says to me, he says, beep, you either pull over or I'm going to kick your ass. And I said, okay, I'm looking hard right now. And I finally see a, like a bowling alley with these uh, uh, semi, the, the back of the trucks, not the thing that pulls right. the semi, but the trailers are all lined up uh, yeah. next to this bowling alley. And then there's a uh, uh, basketball um, pavement and basketball hoops. And then there's some grass. I said, man, they got to be able to find a place to fight. I said, you guys got to be able to find a place to fight somewhere looking right for here. A ring. Yeah, I said that, you know, <laughs> looking for him, that's good. But, I mean, there's, there's grass, there's the asphalt, you know, whatever you guys want. So uh, Tony jumps out and he starts, you know, making his uh, arms go back and forth, pumping his chest yeah. up and down. And he's got a tank, a world's gym tank top on and his jeans and his cowboy boots. And Orndorff's got on a, a pair of sneakers with no socks, a pair of orange, that never wore underwear, Paul, never wore underwear, got a pair of orange, uh, a red, uh, um, shorts on with a uh, out of lack of uh, another word those white theater t-shirts sleeveless yeah. t-shirts i hate that that term um we know so, you just needed to for the description okay yeah so, so anyway uh what are those called <laughs> but there's another, another term that's just as bad so i won't do oh, okay it's oh, okay. t-shirts without the sleeves okay <laughs> t-shirts without the sleeves thank you Sean. so so now we're uh uh, I'm I'm ready to watch. I want to see what happens. You know, I've already seen Paul in action, and I know I mean I know what Paul could do, and uh, had no idea what Tony could do. So uh, Tommy's uh, screaming so bad now he's starting to cry. And now I won't get go into his high pitch scream and all that, but it was it was brutal. And all of a sudden the two bulls hooked up, and um, uh, Paul bellied. He, Tony went to hit Paul. Paul went behind him, bellied it back belly to back them right on the cement Ooh. and they rolled around and all of a sudden I heard ah you cheated ah and Tony Atlas has got his ear and all of a sudden Arndorf goes and spits out a big old piece of flesh and Jeez. Tommy Ritz grabs it and goes oh my god it's an ear it's an ear oh god he bit his ear off and he's like crying to death and, and Atlas is screaming Paul I can't believe you bit my ear off god dang it that's cheating there's no rules in fights yeah. we told you there was a rule in a fight he said get up you pussy and da, 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 da. But, so Atlas never got up we had to go to a hospital and uh, to make a long story short we, we dropped Tony off at the hospital stayed till he got settled in took off um, met uh, the next day he never showed up at TV never showed back up in the territory the next time we saw Atlas was in New York and he was as nice as could be to both of us yeah. Did he have his ear back on, or did they? Not, yeah, he, they, they not they, able to salvage he had, it. He had plastic back on? surgery. Yeah, they had his ear at the hospital. <laughs> Tommy, put that on ice. Tommy had the ear in a in a, okay. uh, in a little uh, no, not a bag. He had it in like a McDonald's or a Burger King <laughs> uh, napkin. <laughs> yeah, we often get sidetracked. That that was well. That was worth going off the tracks. Uh, I really that's that's awesome, Brian. Okay, so uh, I want to get back to. When uh, you and uh, uh, Jim Brunzel, uh, you became part of this. We were talking about the tag teams and why they were just uh, tremendously popular. Uh, you don't see near as many tag teams anymore. And even uh, it just seemed to taper off. But during that time, it really was. They, I, that, that they were, I don't know, maybe the dominant uh, entertaining force. Of course, we had some big superstars, but tag teams were a huge part of it, too. 
Huge, huge, big time. I mean, the tag team division, that's why we could run uh, three towns. At one time we were running three towns at night. Um, and, you know, there was six prevalent tag teams, you know, Demolition, uh, Axe and Smash. You had the uh, Islanders, you, had, um, you know, uh, Martel and Zinc. Yeah. Uh, just so uh, many. Rougeau's, uh, yeah. Yeah, a lot, a lot. And um, it was a lot of fun. I enjoyed working with every single team that we worked with. I mean, we unfortunately, we were stuck with Sheik and Volkov most of the time. Uh-huh. And they got the most heat, actually, but that you couldn't make a comeback on them. I yeah. mean, it's like impossible to make a comeback on them because you hit, and I love Nikolai. Nikolai, you can't help but love Nikolai. Yeah. I mean, you hit Nikolai with a clothesline, and the first thing he does is lands on his hand, his hip, then his knees, his butt, then his back. You know, it's like a four-move bump instead of just taking <laughs> a bump. And, and, it, and then you got to lift him back up rather than him feeding you. Same yeah. thing with sheep, to lift yeah. the sheep up for, you know, for an ass bump. You know, it's like, a, you know, you got to really shoot to lift him up. Yeah. And so that makes it very difficult to make a good comeback on a team. Like you could work with uh, uh, Brutus and Greg or you know, with any one of the other teams and just have a crazy comeback. Uh, but with Sheik and Volkov, it was, you had to get very creative. And, and so what were some of the teams that you really liked to work with that you felt like you had some tremendous matches with? Oh, without a doubt, the Hart Foundation. Hart Foundation? Yeah, I was going to say. Brett and I just got along great. Him and I would call the whole match. I mean, we would sit down and put the whole match together. He had that great psychology from, um, Calgary and I had that Florida psychology and mm-hmm. matches together and uh, Jim and Jim would both you know input what they wanted to do and until we came up with things that would just really rock I mean a lot of people go back to the um, during the Saturday night main event time with Dick Ebersol uh, when, we, when yeah. we were in LA and the Heart Foundation and we used the mass confusion to beat them um, for our, our next title shot against them. and um that was one of the highest rated segments on Saturday night main event to that date for that year. Yeah. Wow. And that was, I mean, you guys, you, you guys, I, I don't even know how many times you stepped in the ring together, but those matches were definitely uh, legendary. Uh, and for some reason, you know, there were tag teams that just clicked. And when you guys were in there with them, really, there was no question about it. It was always a, a tremendous matchup. Were there, were there others that you liked also that, I mean, was yeah, it tougher like, to work against the bigger guys when you would uh, not Sheik and Volkov necessarily, but you know, uh, you know some of these other big te- tag teams when like Demolition. No, I mean, Demolition, right? They were easy to work with and uh, gave us great comebacks, and it was always fun. And you know, they didn't care if they did a job or we didn't care if we did a job. I mean, it was just uh, we'd work together and uh, and we'd always have a good match. I don't think we ever had a bad match. Yeah. Uh, uh, Demolition. And, um, you know, Jimmy has the same philosophy as I do, you know, I mean, he got, you know, once we split up and he had to stay there because, you know, he was going through some tough times, Jimmy as a family and kids and all that. And I was single. So it was much easier for me. I mean, our biggest payoff, um, was WrestleMania three, 35,000 bucks mm. for one night, which was you know, a big deal back then to make 35,000 bucks in a night. Yeah. And, um, yeah. So, um, but, uh, you know, I, I saved my money and, um, when I was done, I was done and I just gave Vince, I said, you know, I want to, 
go do something else uh, for a while. And that's when I started, went back home and opened up Gold's Gyms. And I had my deal with Japan. So I mm-hmm. came to Japan and um, uh, Gold's Gyms became successful. And I wound up uh, having those for 10 years. I had 100, 120 employees and I was debt free. Wow. And Steve Kern, who I'd like to mention, is one of my best friends, and I sold him 20% of my Tampa Palms gym for 20000 bucks, which was like giving it to him. But I knew that Steve, had, he had learned the gym business so well. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, Steve's one of my greatest friends in the whole world. He, uh, um, when I sold the gyms, he wound up getting a check for almost 200000 bucks off his twenty grand, and mm-hmm. um, plus he made 1500 to 2000 bucks a week for no, three years. Wow. That's and awesome. I can tell you a lot about the tag teams just through Steve because he became the trainer. And, you know, I see Steve every week, talk to him every week. And uh, we talk about the business a lot and how the business has morphed. And he's really seen it from the inside. And I said, you know, to him one day, I said, Steve, why do the tag teams now wear different clothing? And he said, well, Vince does that purposely so that when he splits them up, they won't be recognized as you know they're they don't have that, that label gimmick. So yeah from that yeah. gimmick yeah wow. right right so like i'll always be a killer bee you know um uh but uh i don't mind that i'm just the killer bee so uh, yeah. when i was <laughs> a couple weeks ago in chicago you know jimmy came out to the ring but he doesn't work anymore and i still yeah. enjoy it once in a while really oh yeah i'm not saying that but uh but you know it's just amazing considering the pounding you guys take uh, for all those years to me, you know, I, people would always you know talk to me when I was working there and beyond. And I said, look, uh, the only way I can kind of put it into perspective is imagine getting into a car accident every day of your life, <laughs> because right. when you're working like that uh, and taking those bumps that, you know, the, you can do all the, uh, you know, the lifting, whatever, but your, your body, your, your joints, your back, your knees, your shoulders, and people miss once in a while. And they, you, they, the injuries were part of it. And you had to go out and work when you were injured. And, uh, yeah, it's one of the, the toughest professions. You know, football players, at least they get to recover, you know, every week. And they only have to do it for, you know, 16 weeks a year, most of them. Uh, you know, these guys, you guys were doing it. I don't know how many dates you could put them together, but I'm sure it was 200 and something every, uh, every single year for a, a long stretch. My, the most dates I worked was, I believe 70 the first year, my first year in the business, uh, right after we worked in, well, I guess it was in my first full year in Florida. I worked three 360 something times um, during the year because we would do two TVs on Wednesday. Yeah. Uh, we would do double shot. We work seven days a week. Monday was West Palm Beach, Tuesday, Jeez. Tampa, Wednesday, two TVs, then Miami. Thursday was uh, uh, Jacksonville. Friday was Fort Lauderdale or another Southern uh, spot show. Saturday was either Lakeland or um, uh, St. Petersburg. And Sunday was either a double shot in Ocala and the Eddie Graham Sports uh, center in Orlando or just the sports center in Orlando. So you're working, you know, nine, nine, ten times every single week. And you're never off. Christmas was a big day. Um, Thanksgiving yeah. was a big day. And yeah. it's just, you know, as long as you're not hurt, you're working. 
Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and you, uh, uh, you talk about that kind of schedule, but there may not have been as many uh, dates in the ring. But when you were with the, the WWF and it's uh, across the country, you guys are crisscrossing all over the place. How difficult a schedule was that uh, between the flights, the, uh, you know, the, the cars, the hotels, the finding a gym, then getting to the venue? Uh, how, how tough a, a run was that to do? Well, you you really just said it, Sean. I mean, that's exactly what we did. It was planes, trains, and automobiles. Yeah. <laughs> I, mean, yeah, no, really. I mean, although we really didn't take a train, I never did anyway, uh, but uh, it was either the airplane or an automobile, and you would get to the gym, work out, and um, worrying about eating in between, and then uh, getting to the show, and, you know, make sure you go uh, grab a drink somewhere, and, um, Fortunately, uh, one thing having Jimmy as a partner was he liked to watch sports on television and split a six-pack, and so that was uh, pretty mild, and uh, he was pretty pretty good for me to hang around with. Uh, not that I did that all the time. But, <laughs> um, it was, uh, I, I think most people, if they tr- tried it and weren't raised in that business, that you couldn't do it. I mean, it's just – it's – it's, it's brutal. I mean, I've had over a dozen operations where I've been put to sleep. I've had uh, four knee operations till I got a new knee. I wrestled in the three days after I had an orthoscopic surgery in um, Puerto Rico in a driving rainstorm. And um, uh, like I said, uh, I had my knee replaced, had my quad torn all the way off my, my, uh, my left leg. I've had... Um, bottle stabbed through my right hand accidentally by Eric the Red went all the way through my hand. I have no more feeling in my hand. I tore three tendons in Hiroshima Jeez. against uh, Orndorff and Big John Studd and I were working against Tatsumi Fujinami and Nikito and Anoki. Um, uh, and, uh, you know, they told me if I went to a doctor in Hiroshima, I mean, the boys were ribbing me, of course, that they were going to sew my hand up and uh, I would uh, it would be in a fist forever. They were <laughs> one at a time coming and just ribbing me so I wouldn't go to the hospital because everybody knew if we went to the hospital, we'd be there for a long time. Yeah. So I just wrapped it up for two weeks, and the doctor went to cut down to find my tendons. I tore two tendons, popped them right off when I had keto in the corner because the people started coming in the ring, and keto got scared and leaped when I had the back of my fingers and his tights and I was choking them. He just leaped out of nowhere and pop my two fingers middle fingers Jeez. so yeah so um, i mean it is you, you could go on and on and, and it is yeah. it's a very uh there's no, i don't know if there are many other tougher professions you could even uh, try and come up with but uh at the t- at the time though when when the wwf was peaking it must have just been mind-blowing to have been a part of like we said there was a there's very few who uh were at that level, who were of the elite. And as I mentioned, there's, there were thousands and thousands. But at any given time, that superstar roster was about 50-plus. And to have been part of that, that must have just been mind-blowing. Did you did you look around then and say, man, this kid from Tampa who uh, you know wanted to play football, look at look what I'm doing? Yeah, you know, I've, all, I've often uh, looked around and uh, – and said to myself, you know, while I'm very, very blessed uh, because I'm a very faithful person, I, I believe uh, 
you know, that things happen for a reason. I worked really hard, but uh, I looked around many a times and asked, well, how did I get here? And um, I'm glad I'm here. And I'm very thankful. And it just, uh, you know, it worked out um, to where I, I still, I'm so passionate about the business, Sean, that I give so much of my time to the Cauliflower Alley Club, as you know. And uh, I, I just uh, have... Uh, a lot of times ask myself and even even now you know at uh, you know at 59 years old i look at uh look around and uh, when i see that i'm booked uh already at least two times during the next six months yeah and uh sometimes three in different places um I think to myself, you know, I thought this ended and it's just like, it keeps going and it keeps going. And it's like, yeah. uh, it's like a dream. I just love the business so much. I do. Yeah. And, and it's, uh, like you said, there, not many planned well, but it sounds like you did. Uh, you saved your money. You got into politics. I just wanted to touch on that quickly. Uh, why did, why the passion to do something more to do with that for your community? Well, I love, I love the community. Um, and you know, I love kids. I think about my childhood and I think about the mentors that were there for me. Um, then I think about, you know, conversations with Jesse conversations with other people and, um, meeting different people in the political world and knowing that you have more of an opportunity to change the things in a political position than probably any other position yeah. uh, as far as taxes, rates, fees, setting policy. That's what, uh, for example, a county commissioner for the entire county of Hillsborough County, 1.3 million people, you handle a $5 billion budget and um, you determine all the taxes, the rates, the fees, all the policy for the entire county. I mean, that's, that's on your back. Yeah. And, so you can um, you can do good things. For example, I have uh, I have this in writing, audited. I saved not I shouldn't say I I came up with ideas because uh, on a county commission you have seven seats, uh, yeah. four districts and three at large. Yeah. I was at large, and you have to convince three other people to go along with your ideas. So during a four year uh, during one four year period on the board, I was able to come up with ideas that wound up saving our taxpayers over a billion dollars in a 10 year period. Oh. And that's, you know, quite a bit of money. And, you know, I think about seniors wondering whether they're going to eat or have medicine. And I remember being poor and knowing what it was like just to have a dollar in my pocket. And I think about, well, you know, uh, you know, a hundred dollars is not chicken scratch, you know, or, you know, when you could save yeah. people a thousand dollars in a year, well, then you're really doing something. Yeah. When you create so, more efficiencies. Yeah. Well, you were elected to county commissioner, and I—I uh, I think you served four years. Um, are you—are you done with politics, or is, there, is that still something you may may still step well, back into? I, I was actually going to run for state representative this year. To the only time I lost a primary in my life um, was to um, Jamie Grant, whose father is the senator, was a senator, Senator Grant, and he got caught taking a $40,000 illegal loan a week before the election. He beat me by a thousand votes in 2010. 
And um, um, the Democrat that was in our race sued him for that. And so he didn't get seated for three or four weeks. And somehow I was getting ready to file to run for District 64, House State House 64. Um, and thinking Jamie Grant's termed out and needs some fresh blood. He had been involved in a couple uh, questionable situations. So um, I find out that he's got an extra term. Somehow the uh, Florida Supreme Court gave him an extra term for not being seated on time. And that hasn't been challenged. I don't know if I was going to challenge it or wait for two years, but I do see politics in the future somewhere. Yeah, I was going to say that. I think that's uh, <laughs> it's still in your blood. And I know you've uh, you've been married for quite a while. You mentioned your wife, Tony, and you got a couple of uh, sons. Uh, Brian, it sounds like uh, you know life life's been good uh, from uh, some humble beginnings. And you mentioned that you're still you're very active with the Cauliflower uh, Alley Club. Uh, and and doing and the WWE ain't gonna let you go either. I mean, the uh, you you still see uh, and all these other activities that are going on around uh, with with this resurgence of people who love that time that uh, that you are a part of. Yes, and it's it's so rewarding. And uh, WWE has been so good to the Cauliflower Alley Club, and mm. you know, we gave away over a hundred grand last year. And we don't normally name the people that right. you know we help, Sean, but. Some of us, some of them give us permission to, and um, then the other ones that don't, uh, and we don't ask for permission. They'll just say, "Hey, if you want to use my name, that you know, you help me. I don't mind that." And if they do say that, of course, we'll we'll take advantage of that. Like Mr. Wonderful Paul Orndorff, who had stage four lymph node cancer. You know, he fell on yeah. some very difficult financial times, just like Bobby right. the Brain Heenan, and uh, and of course uh, Kamala, who went through diabetes and lost his legs. I mean, we help so many people, Sean, that it's amazing. And I'm the president and CEO, and I paid my own airplane ticket. I spend at least 10 hours every single week with the Cauliflower Alley Club. I, I pay for every single thing when I'm there. Nobody gives me anything for free. Yeah. And it's the same with all the board members. You know, you do it out of a labor of love. And when you see uh, Brickhouse Brown will be there. Uh, Brickhouse Brown, Rocky Johnson, who's a very close friend of mine, Rocky calls me up and says, hey, there's a guy named Brickhouse Brown in Tennessee and uh, or in uh, Mississippi, and you know who he is? And I said, well, I heard of him. I think he broke in in Florida, but I don't really know him. Yeah. Well, he's become like uh, such a close friend of mine now because when he called me, he had uh, just found out he had stage four cancer because the doctors were just giving him painkillers. His wife had left him broke. He had no money, and he's living in a hundred dollar a week room. He uh, uh, he can't afford to go to a specialist, so he's just going to this doctor that's giving him pain pills and that's it so it goes yeah. from stage two to stage four yeah. so we get him a doctor's appointment and the doc first doctor that we sent him to wanted to remove his testicles he calls me up and say brian the guy wants me to go to the hospital tonight and remove my testicles i said where'd you get this doctor at and he said i don't know what I, I said well listen i'm gonna have one of our attorneys look for a good doctor for you and uh i think it was bruce Starp called around um Anyway, anyhow, he got a really good doctor, went in through his penis and took the sample that they needed to help him get. And now here's a guy that's been fighting for disability for six months and he's dying. Uh, the doctor said he might have six months to live. He went from 150 something pounds down to uh, two, 
240. I mean, 140, 140, wow. um, 250 something to 140. And, um, Reggie B. Fine called me up and, um, uh, told me about him and, uh, what kind of condition he was in. So we got him on chemo, got him the right doctor, paid for all that stuff. And he went from a death sentence to now he weighs 204 pounds from 140 mm. and he's almost cancer free. Yeah. And, you know, and people don't, uh, I don't realize, I don't think people uh, realize that, you know, basically all professional wrestlers, there's the, been exceptions in the last decades or so, but they were, they're independent contractors. They don't have insurance. And, uh, a lot of them didn't plan for their future or what would be what you could even call a retirement, uh, if they made it that far. And, uh, that's what this organization does. The Cauliflower, Cauliflower Alley Club helps these guys. And it's, uh, uh how can people get in touch with uh, that group? And if they wanted to help out, uh, how would they do it? Uh, they would just go to caulifloweralleyclub.org. And you can become a member for as little as $25 for a year, $50 for two years, $75 for three years, or you can become a lifetime member for $300. And uh, you get four copies of the award-winning newsletter that year that's not on the Internet. It's four-color. You get a certificate that's suitable for hanging. When I was uh, nominated for the Men's Wrestling Award um, in 2001, I still have mine uh, certificate hanging in my awards mm. room and um, uh, you get to come to the reunions and our 53rd reunion is six weeks away in Vegas. It's uh, April 30th to May 2nd. It's going to be a blast. It's $125 yeah. for a reunion ticket, $40 rooms. You got uh, all kinds of seminars. It's just a blast. I tell you yeah. what, Sean Moody, if you ever, ever want to have a off the chart time, you come, I promise you, you come to one cauliflower alley club event and you will never want to miss yeah. it again. I know uh, Lord Lord Alfred Hayes loved the Cauliflower Alley Club, and he would go out and uh, and be a part of those events. And I, it, it's just it's a great organization because it's devoted to, to not only keeping these guys in touch and being a great uh, source, a social uh, gathering place for these for people, but also it takes care of them, and that's the the best part. It helps to take care of them. Uh, Brian, it has been an absolute pleasure talking to you. How can, you know, I always have uh, people get in touch with me after we have these conversations with, and they want to uh, reach out to you. Uh, how could they do that? Do you have an email address or a place that uh, they can contact you? Facebook, something? Yeah, I've got a Facebook account. Uh, they can go to thekillerbees.net, um, or they can catch me on Twitter at killerb1b. Um, Facebook, uh, Brian Blair, and a picture I have a uh, Killer B account. Uh, there's several different accounts, but my personal account is the one with uh, Nick Bachwickel, myself, and Carl Lauer as the cover picture in Tampa. And uh, that that one's full. There's five thousand. That's all they let you have. But my uh, fan pages, I answer those too at the Killer Bees on Facebook, uh, KillerBees.net. Um, and uh, I I truly truly enjoy interacting with the fans because without them as you know uh, Sean we would be nothing none of us yeah. would have a job and so yeah. I, I appreciate them they're my friends and that's what's so special about Cauliflower Alley Club you know you got a thousand members and they all converge in Vegas uh, for you know it's supposed to be three days but it, uh, some people stay for a week I usually stay for a week and. Uh, you know, we all become like family, and you see all your old colleagues. I mean, there'll be 300 different wrestlers there. Yeah. Um, 
it's amazing. It's an amazing time. It's an amazing uh, organization to belong to, uh, cauliflowerallyclub.org. I promise you, go one time, you'll, you'll never want to miss again. We get $40 room rates for our people. Wow. Discount budget, rental cars. I mean, the uh, Hoover Dam's less than 30 minutes away. The Grand Canyon's a little over two hours away. You can make a whole vacation out of it, bring the family. But uh, yeah. we only allow nice people. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. And, uh, you know, it's amazing to think because you were basically, you were a killer bee pretty much your whole, your career and that, but that run with the WWF was about three years. And, uh, I think a lot of people would love to seen this, the straps around your waist, but, uh, regardless, uh, you guys were part of a, a, a great era and, and remain, I know one of the, the favorites among the tag teams in the WWF. Yeah. I, you know, I know, um, we were promised the belts three times and that's why I finally left, uh, when the third time Vince promised us the belts and we didn't get them. Uh, and I saw strike force coming in, uh, who had already been in and, uh, another team, um, uh, came in I can't think right the second, but uh, I saw the writing on the wall and I wasn't going to sit there and, uh, not be the champion. So, yeah. uh, Vince just didn't get along with Brunzel, Brun- uh, Brunzy. I, I, you know, Brunzy loved to argue with him and, uh, just, you know, it's just, you know, Jimmy's a good guy. Don't get me wrong. He's a t- tremendous guy, but he'll tell you, he'll be the first one to tell you that he hates Vince. Yeah. And uh, so, you know, I don't know what will happen in the future. We'll see. But fortunately, I get along great with Vince, and uh, I appreciate everything that he did for uh, me, my family, and all the fans out there. Yeah. And regardless, uh, many of those moments in the ring with those, uh, with the Hart Foundation and those other matches uh, remain uh, legendary forever. So, uh, Brian, oh, forever, thank you so forever. much for joining us here on Primetime, and uh, thanks for coming on. Hey, it's been a real blast. I uh, appreciate it so much. Um, thank you very, very, very much, Sean Moody, and being on Primetime was a pleasure for me. So thanks again, and just keep on buzzing, brother. <laughs>